Well, good morning and welcome to the Mount. If you are joining us for the first time today, whether you are here at our Stafford campus, joining us online, wherever you happen to be, or down at Fredericksburg, we are so excited for you to be with us today as we worship and dive into scripture and hopefully find some practical things in scripture that help us live a better life. If you are joining us today, we are in week number two of a series titled Money Talks. And what we're doing throughout this series, in essence, is we are looking at some of the things that money or our culture, what money says or talks to us, and we're contrasting or comparing that with what the Bible or Scripture has to say. And I do want to acknowledge just right out of the gate this morning that I know for many of us gathered today, the topic of money can be pretty shameful. Maybe it has a lot of stress attached to it. Maybe for us, there's a lot of guilt, a lot of frustration Maybe you are here this morning and just the idea of money immediately reminds you of all the embarrassing mistakes that you have made. I want to say my hope, my prayer as the pastor of the Mount is that as we go through this series, what you would experience and see is that when we live Biblically, when we, even if we don't believe in Jesus or not, I still think it applies. If we begin to kind of use the Bible in a way that helps us live our financial life, what we will experience is freedom. We will experience hope, purpose, significance. We will experience a life that is more abundant than we could ever imagine if we take what Scripture says. But here's the reality, is the majority of us, unfortunately, are finding our financial advice everywhere but scripture. And in fact, a recent survey by Lifeway Research, they surveyed, and I'm gonna make sure I get this right, they surveyed uh, professing Christians aged 25 to 40, so kind of that older millennial down to like the younger millennial, maybe a little bit of Gen Z in there, but these are people who have professed to believe in Jesus, who attend church regularly, who care about the gospel and the good news and all these things. So they, they surveyed them and they asked them the question, where do you get most of your financial advice from? And listen to these results. 47% said their parents. That's not a bad result. 37% said social media. 30% said friends. And 28% said the Bible. In other words, if you're age 25 to 40 and you were in this survey and you are a professing Christian, what you are saying is that you get your advice of how to live a financially healthy and successful life all these other places first. You trust the strangers on the internet more than you trust scripture. And here's the reality behind that, is I think that's normal. I think whether we want to admit it or not, there are things that the Bible says about money that we just don't like. And so money, when it talks to us, says things that we like and enjoy. And so we listen to it more. And unfortunately, what happens is when we do this, when culture talks, when money talks, when society talks and we listen, we get incredibly broken, disastrous results in our lives. And what I know, though, over years of being a pastor is that when we listen to what the Redeemer says, we get redeemed results. And we find fulfillment and satisfaction. And so here's what I want to do is because this week, this series sort of builds every week, I want to recap where we went last week and kind of where we've been so far. Last week, we said whether we admit it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, money and life are intertwined. 
They are inseparable. There is not a single facet, aspect, or area of our lives where, where money does not intersect and intertwine in some way or another. It might be because we're spending money, we're saving money, we're earning money, we're giving money, we're thinking about money, we're wishing we had money, we're driving in our car. Whatever's happening, money and life are always intertwined. They are inseparable in our culture. And because of this, whether we want to be or not, it's not by choice, we are in a relationship with money. This isn't that sort of relationship where it's like you have that friend and you're like, I choose to be your friend. This is like the crazy uncle at Thanksgiving that you have no choice but to be with. You're stuck with them. You are in a relationship with money. And unfortunately, for many of us, that relationship that we have with money is incredibly, incredibly dysfunctional. It's incredibly harmful. But also I would say, whether it is harmful and dysfunctional or healthy and good, that relationship that we have with money is tremendously important. Why? Because there is a connection between our spiritual lives and money. We said this last week. There is a deep, fundamental connection with our spiritual lives and what we believe, what we think, how we act, how we spend, how we earn, how we save, and how we give our money. The two are intertwined. And you say, whoa, 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 what do you mean by that, Adam? Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, I won't read, I won't be on the screen, but just remember this if you've heard it before. Jesus tells this bold statement where he says, basically, and to summarize it, he says, wherever your money goes, your heart will follow. And we, as much as we want it to be the opposite, we want to say, no, 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 no. Like, I determine what's happening. I set my heart. No, no, no. Jesus says, no, no, no. Your heart, your desire, your passions, your purpose, or dare I say, your worship is determined by where your money goes. In essence, for those of us who profess to believe in Jesus and know that we live in the tension of the here and now, but our home is in eternity, and we should set our mind on eternity, and we should think about heavenly things, when we spend all of our money on the here and now, on the earthly things, we begin to worship and idolize earthly things. Whether we're a believer or not, when we spend all of our money use all of our resources on ourself, our heart becomes selfish. We only think about ourselves. We only worry about ourselves. In turn, we worship ourselves. There is a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. Which last week, if you remember, we said, because of this, we live in a culture where money talks. And it talks a lot. It's always whispering. It's always proclaiming. It's always telling us something. And a lot of times, the thing that it's proclaiming is contradictory or in direct competition with what God says. And last week, if you remember, we said this. We said, money says, chase me and I will make you happy. The promise that money gives us is if you chase me, pursue me, earn me, get me, accumulate me, have me, then you will find satisfaction. And if you have enough of me, if you pursue me enough, if you get enough of me, you will find joy and fulfillment and all the things that you have longed for deep in the recesses of your soul will finally be at rest. But you can't worship God and money. And the very thing that money promises is the very thing that God promises as well. Because God says, while money says, chase me and I will make you happy, God says, I am enough. Your happiness is not dependent on external circumstances. That, that desire you feel in your soul cannot be met with an external remedy. 
You were created by me, God, and only I can satisfy the longing of your soul. In other words, God says, I am enough. I am enough. And so this morning for week number two, I want to dive into the topic of saving. And so before we dive into that, I just, I'm curious today because it seems like in my experience, the, when it comes to this topic, people are either one or the other. There's kind of two major camps with this. You're either someone who's a saver or you're someone who's a spender. And so what I want to do at all of our campuses, and I need like 100% participation here, if you would be open and honest today to admit, you know what, I am a saver. That's just me. Would you just lift up your hand real high? So some hands around the room. Okay, we got some. Now, I know that others of you, like, maybe you have the spiritual gift of spending, right? <laughs> if that's you, if you have like that spiritual gift of spending and you can blow through money like nobody's business, would you just own it? Just slip up your hand real high. All right, so those of you with your hands up, hold them up for just a second. Here's what I need you to do. In the seat pocket in front of you is a QR code. Um, I, as your pastor, I want to help you use your spiritual gift. So you can just go ahead and donate right there to the mount, and we will thank you very deeply for that. So, But here's, here's the reality, right? Like, it seems like we're one or the other. And a lot of times, in my experience, the saver marries the spender. It just, it just happens. If you have two spenders in a marriage, Woo, but like, it just happens. And here's what else I know. It's not like, I don't think this is like something we like learn, I think, and I could be wrong, this is not scientific. This is just my observation as a 40 year old who doesn't have a lot of life experience. I, I think at times it's like, it's just part of our DNA. Like we're one or the other. Like for instance, I have two boys and some of you have met them. They are 12 years old, Emerson, my oldest, and nine years old, about to be 10, my youngest, Micah. And for the longest time, years ago, I was able to identify which one was the saver and which one was the spender. The saver in my family is my youngest, Micah. Micah, his, his allowance goes straight to his bank account on his debit card, and he can spend it when he wants, but this kid could probably buy a house in Stafford County. He has enough money already. Like, this kid is not going to spend anything. Like, we will go to Target, and he'll be looking at, like, some sports thing or some Pokemon cards or look at something, and he's like, oh, man, how much is this, Dad? I'm like, it says $4.99, so five bucks. And he's like, oh, how much do I have? I'm like, I don't know, $300? He's like, it doesn't feel worth it. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, dude, you are a saver. My oldest, on the other hand, this kid spends it before it hits his account. Like... Emerson comes to me asking for payday loans. Like, I feel like a, like a predatory lender. Like, like, I'm his bookie, and he's like, I'll just pay interest. What do I need to do? Like, like this kid, I, whoever, if he ever gets married, like, I hope his wife has a fantastic job because he's going to need two incomes for sure. Like, he is a spender. And I think that's us, right? We're, we're kind of one or the other. We're kind of this spender or this saver. And I think, unfortunately, the reality is, is that whether we admit it or not, a lot of us are like Emerson. Saving is difficult. In fact, a recent study by the Fed, they published this report every single year. It's kind of their annual report of American finances. They found this. They said around 69% of Americans have less than $1,000 in their savings account. 45% have less than $400 in their savings account. And don't miss this. 34%, one third of all Americans have less than $100 in savings. Now, 
I want to pause because I, I definitely don't want to like make anyone feel bad or shame or guilt or regret. I want to acknowledge that in a room this size across all of our campuses, there could be many of you today and you, you are in a situation that is unique. Maybe you are a, a single mom working minimum wage and you are single not by choice. Maybe you were in some sort of horrible accident and the, the jobs that you are limited to just don't pay enough or you can't work full time or whatever happens to be. Or maybe you had so much mistakes from your parents that got passed down to you that you can't dig yourself out of this hole. I wanna acknowledge that and I don't wanna belittle that. I understand that there are situations that for many of us, we get in these situations and whether it is our fault or someone else's fault or just society in general, we find ourselves at a place where we are fighting and struggling not to save anything, but just to pay our bills month, weekly, or even daily just to survive. I, I wanna acknowledge that. And I, and I wanna say this, if you are here at our campuses today and, and that is you and you call the Mount your home, we wanna help. We want you to, to stop by our guest services desk and ask for help. We want you to, to call the church office and talk to our, our campus pastors, our receptionists, or our care pastors, because we want to come alongside our people because we are family and we wanna help you begin to right the ship because we realize that you may be in a very difficult situation. But also, I wanna acknowledge that that is not the majority of us. The majority of us probably have decent jobs. The majority of us are probably financially, we may not be succeeding the way we want to be, we may not be where we wish we were, but we are not living week to week or day to day. We have a little bit more, we just kind of don't maybe manage it the best. And here's the reality, for the majority of us, the truth, the reality is, is we're just not saving. We, we, are, we are average, and maybe our church is twice as good as every other American out there. It still doesn't make us very good when it comes to this. The majority of us aren't saving. So let's talk about this. And so in my experience, in the, in the church world, and when I say church, I mean like the large church, the global church, kind of all over, not the, the local church that you are attending today. In the church, there seems to be these two kind of conflicting, opposing extremes when it comes to saving in the Bible. On, on one extreme, you have what theologians would call like the poverty gospel. And the poverty gospel, basically, it means like, hey, we believe that like when we read scripture, when we look at the life of Jesus, we believe that savings is not biblical. Because I mean, look at Jesus. Jesus didn't have savings. He didn't have a 401k. Jesus didn't have a backup just in case. Jesus didn't have all that money set aside. And when he called his followers to follow him, he said, you need to emulate me. You need to lay down your, you lay down your life, pick up your cross, walk in my footsteps. And so therefore, as believers of Jesus, those who profess that, we need to be willing to live a life of poverty. Why? Because Jesus told us to pray, give us today our daily bread. So we will trust that whatever comes up in the future, the Lord will provide. And we don't need savings. In fact, if you look at the 12 disciples, they probably didn't have any savings. In fact, they left their livelihood. They, they cast down their nets. They got rid of their tax collector's booth and they followed Jesus regardless of any security or trust for the future. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have what theologians would call the prosperity gospel. 
And this one, just to kind of summarize in simple form as I can, this would be the view that said God is a good and loving and holy and faithful God and he cares about his children. And you know what? One of the ways he cares about his children is he provides blessings for them. And scripture tells us that financial wealth is a blessing from God. Therefore, don't you want God to bless you as much as you can? Don't you wanna be the most blessed people on earth? You're, you're a believer in Jesus. You should be abundantly wealthy because God is giving you good. And that is a display. The more you spend, the more you accumulate, the more you have, the more you live extravagantly, the more that displays to the world around you the goodness and the grace of God in your life. Now, a lot of times you either believe one or the other these two extremes, right? Like it's either this or it's that. And part of that is just, I think, American culture right now. Like we love to live on the extremes. You're either this politically or you're that politically. You're either this when it comes to this cultural stance or you're that when it comes to this cultural stance. We love to be divided into these two extremes, these two opposing arguments. But when I look at scripture, yes, there are moments when scripture has these opposing either or sort of theological statements. They are there and you can find them. But a lot of times what we see in scripture, especially in the life of Jesus, is less of this either or and more of a both and sort of mindset. And what we see in scripture when we look at the 66 books of the Bible is we see examples of godly, wise, biblically sound people who are both wealthy and both in poverty. You see pictures of the lady who gives her two coins as an offering, the widow, and Jesus says in the New Testament that her sacrifice, her offering, her gift was more generous and greater than anyone else. She was rich and abundant in the way she did it, but she was dirt poor. But at the same time, you see people passionately pursuing God, and they are loaded with wealth and prosperous. People like Abraham, people like Joseph, people like Matthew. And even in scripture, what's interesting is you see people who are both wealthy and poor all in the span of their life in scripture. You see people like Job and Paul who have seasons of wealth and prosperity and seasons of poverty and nothing. What you see in scripture is you see this, this middle road. And so what does scripture actually say when it comes to saving? What does, it, what does it say? Like, if you remember last week, we said, if you were here, we said that there are over 2,300 verses in the Bible that talk about money and finances and possessions. And we said, we don't know if that's a lot or not. And so to put it in context, we said that that is four times more verses than there are about faith. Four times more verses than there are about prayer. In fact, when you look at just the, the first four books of the New Testament, the gospels, the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ, what you find is that more than any other topic, Jesus spoke on money and possessions. 15% of everything he said was about money and possessions. In fact, a full two thirds of every story or parable that Jesus told was about money and possessions. And so the Bible has all of this to say about money, but what does it say about saving? And so what I'm going to do, I just want to share with you a couple of verses from the book of Proverbs that's full of wisdom. Take a look at this. This is from Proverbs 6, verse 6 through 8. Um, and I love, I'm going to point this out. I picked this version because this word is my favorite word in here. So just, it says, take a look from the ants, you lazy bones. 
Like, I just, like other versions say sluggard, and lazy bones just sounds better. It says, take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise. Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer. Doing what? Gathering. Food for when? In other words, the ants, the ants spend spring and summer and fall gathering food, not so they can consume, 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 and eat and eat and eat and get fat and hibernate. No, they gather it and they store it for later because they know that the long, harsh winter is coming, the lean season is coming, and they want to make sure that they are wise and set aside a portion for them. Proverbs 21.20 says it this way, the wise do what? They store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. In other words, the fool is the person who the moment they make it, spend it. They gulp it down, they eat it, they consume it, they spend it. But the wise stores up. The wise saves. We see this, another example in the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph is this guy who's put over a lot of things, and because of his faithfulness to save for the future, to put things away for the rainy day, he saves not only his family, the nation of Israel, and all of Egypt, because he was wise in the way he saved. Over and over and over again, passage after passage, person after person, what we see in Scripture is people who set aside for the future, who save for those moments, those seasons that are lean, those moments in their financial life, when they save with the right heart for the right purpose, they are wise, not foolish. And so that, that leads me to the question, if a wise person saves for the future, are you a wise person? Are you wise? And I don't, I don't say this to make you feel guilt. Or shame, like if you've been at the mountain, you know that's not really how I roll, that's not my style. Like it's just, like I, I, don't, I don't say this to make you be like, oh, that's harsh. I don't know. I say this because I believe with everything in me, you can't make a plan for the future unless you know where you're starting. I can't, I can't take off on a road trip unless I know where I'm starting. And some of you, maybe the thing that you need to do is stop pretending. You need to stop pretending that like, oh, it'll, it'll be okay. Like, it's just a couple mistakes. It's just not that big a deal. We'll be fine. We can get through this. We can, no, no. Maybe you need to stop and you need to acknowledge, like, in order for me to move forward, in order for me to begin to live biblically the way the Bible speaks of finances, I need to acknowledge that I've been a fool, that I haven't been very wise. Are you a wise person? And so here's what I want to do. I want to make this incredibly practical for the day. And then we'll come back to some theology at the end. Remember, as we've kind of gone along through this series, one of the things I've said is that my goal, my purpose is not to like help, like, like not to like biblical financial like fluency. It's not something I want from you. It's something I want for you. I believe with everything in me that this is an integral part of your spiritual formation, your discipleship, and how you follow Jesus the same way prayer and worship and, you know, serving and all those different things. And so I, I hope what you see today is this is me helping you begin today to be the process of a wise person and no longer living as a fool. And so how can we begin saving? And the first thing if you're taking notes, you might write this down, we're going to spend less than you earn. 
Spend less than you earn. And I know for some of you, you're like, you lost me already, bro. <laughs> like, that's impossible. I get it. I do. Like, but here's the, and we're going to talk about this next week. We're going to talk about spending and what, what culture and money says about spending and contentment in our lives and the purpose. But here's what you need to know. You cannot save money unless you create margin. You can't live to the max and then be like, well, it'll just work out. God's good. No, 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 no. You're a fool. You got to spend less than you earn. You got to create margin. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's only two ways to make this happen. One, you either need to earn more money, or two, spend less of what you already make. And for some of you, maybe it is you need to earn more money. Maybe for you, as we go through this series, what God's gonna affirm in your heart is that you love your job, but it's not the place you need to be. And you're gonna step out in faith and try to find somewhere else that, that allows you to kind of move in a certain direction. Maybe some of you, you're gonna go full on millennial and start some sort of social media side gig hustle with a pyramid scheme and it's gonna be great and you're gonna make millions of dollars and it's gonna be awesome. Maybe some of you, what you're gonna do, and this is the hardest one, what you're gonna do is you're gonna cut back on what you actually spend. And you're just going to cut out maybe a pumpkin spice latte a week. Because they're not that good anyways. <laughs> you're going to go out to dinner one less time a week. You're going to wait and watch the movie on Netflix. <laughs> maybe you're going to cancel a subscription service. If you're like my house, we got like 15 of those things. You're going to spend less than you earn. Number two, you're going to save for emergencies. You're going to save for emergencies. Everyone say this word with me. Emergencies. emergencies. What do I mean by emergencies? I don't mean Christmas gifts. <laughs> I don't mean the new iPhone 15 Pro Max ultra cool titanium shell that came from space right into your hands. I don't, I don't mean that. What I mean by emergencies is not wants, but needs. Right, you're gonna save for emergencies. What does that mean? That means that one day, your hot water heater's gonna break. <laughs> and 75% of Americans don't have enough money to cover it in cash. Maybe one day, your kid's gonna slide down the stair banister and break an arm. That's an emergency you're gonna need to pay for. Maybe one day, you're gonna be driving down 95 and you're gonna have a flat tire and they're gonna tell you it's $300 for that tire. A third of us couldn't pay for that. We're going to save for emergencies. Why? Because here's why this is important. So many times when we live to the max, emergencies are coming. Murphy's Law, something's going to go wrong in life. It's going to break. It's going to mess up. Something's going to happen. And then we don't have the margin to cover it. We don't have the savings to cover it. What happens is we end up putting it on credit card or going into debt. And that creates a snowball. And all of a sudden now we're adding payments, we're adding more and more and more and more. And one day we look up and we don't even realize how we got there, but we can barely breathe because we are so over our heads in debt. We're gonna save for emergencies. And so here's my advice. And all financial planners have all sorts of advice and you can probably find some of them. This is just my advice based on 20 years of being a pastor. First goal, you're gonna save $1,000. Like that's your target, let's get $1,000 because that puts you in the top 20% of Americans just having $1,000 in savings. 
That should be, for the most part, that should be enough to cover a lot of emergencies that happen in life. Now, it's not going to cover if your HVAC unit breaks or any of those kind of things. No, but it'll at least get you started. And then once you get that $1,000, then you're going to sit down and you're going to calculate what's the next number for our family to be for these emergencies. And every financial planner is going to tell you that number is probably somewhere between three and six months of your expenses, your needs. What I mean by that is you calculate this number by being like, hey, if I lose my job tomorrow and I had to have, what do I need to survive? Like if I canceled every subscription I have, if I stopped eating all the out and do it, what is the bare minimum I need to survive? That's my expenses. Now, how many months of that do I need? Three to six months. And you say, why is there such a big gap? Three to six months is a big gap. Well, it depends on your personal circumstances. For instance, maybe you are a dual income family. If you lose your job, your spouse still has income, so therefore you might not need six months. Three months may be enough because they have enough cushion to cover if you cut some expenses. For some of you, you may be in the job or career field where, you know what, like if you got laid off tomorrow, you could find a new job next week because your career field moves so fast and it's always fluid and it's always this and this and it's contract work and this and this, so maybe you only need three months. My career field, on the other hand, just to give you a little insight, it is not a fast-moving process. Like, like, for me, like, if I was to, like, not be employed here anymore and you guys let me go and all of a sudden I needed to find a new job, it would take me six months just to get one interview at a church, and they would probably want 13 interviews before they hired me. So three months wouldn't be enough. So it, it, it's your circumstance, your situation, three to six months, what's the number that you need? And so here's the good news about this, is once you have this emergency fund built up, you don't have to do anything with it anymore. Like, like you were already setting aside a certain amount of money funding this emergency fund. Once it hits its target goal, you now don't have to put it in there. You basically are giving yourself a raise to use that money for some other kingdom purposes, for something else. And that's where it starts to get fun. And the next thing is we're going to save for the future. What do I mean by future? This is all about your circumstance. Like, you may have, like, this is like college expenses. You may have one kid who's brilliant. You don't need a college savings. You may have nine kids who are, you know, so-so. You, you might need to save some money here. You might need to save for retirement, like a 401k or a 403b or an IRA. Or you might be someone who's like, you know what, I got three military paychecks coming every single month because I've had 19 different jobs and I've retired 42 times. You're good then. You might not need some sort of future retirement pay, okay? This is your circumstance. You might say, one of the things I want in the future is to get all my kids braces. You probably better save for that, right? Like, I don't know your situation, but you're going to save for the future. And the last thing is, is you're going to save for large purchases, this is what, th these categories are all about your needs. This category is about your wants, right? Like you want that new couch, save for it. Don't go out and just buy it on the credit card and then have to pay it. No, no, save for it. And you're like, but I'm gonna pay for it anyways. That's true. But here's what I have found in my personal life, me and my wife. Most of the time, when we go spend money on a large purchase, a week or two later, I'm like, did we really even need that? But when we stop and say, yeah, we're going to get that, we're going to save three months to get it. Usually by the second or third month, I'm like, I don't even think I want this thing anymore. Like, let's use this money for something else. Sometimes in the patient process of saving for a large purchase, you delay that instant gratification and you find out you don't really need what you thought you needed. It's discipline. So we're going to, here's what I know. 
When I say this, there's going to be some of you, and you're immediately going to be like, Adam, this is like great advice. Like, I wish I would have heard this when I was 25. This would have been awesome. But uh, that's unrealistic. Like, there's, there's no possible way I can do that. That's too overwhelming. I can't spend less than I earn. I can't save for emergencies. I can't save for the future. And I can't save for large purchases. I just can't do that. It's impossible. I get it. Because in your mind, what you're thinking is, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go all in. I'm going to put all this and do all this. No, no, no. Here's my advice. Start small and be consistent. Start small and be consistent. And in fact, you see this in Scripture, this advice, this idea of starting small and being consistent. Look at Proverbs 13, verse 11. It says this, This honest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. It's that idea that instead of trying to go all in and do everything all at once, no, no, I can, I can cut back. I can do a little here and a little there and a little there. And then over time, it will have an exponential impact on my life. Look at it again. Proverbs 21.5 says it this way. Good planning and hard work lead to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. You will not build biblical wealth quickly. It is starting small and doing it consistently. Why? Because here's what I know. Consistency always beats intensity. Those of you that are runners, I'm a runner, and I'm not a sprinter. I'm more of a long-distance runner. Like, like it, there's just something about consistency over time, the discipline of doing something repeatedly over and over and over again that leads to tremendous results that you never thought possible. And here's what I know. Imagine, just, just imagine with me for a minute. This is what separates the wise from the fool. The fool spins and spins, consumes and consumes, never has enough. And the wise person, though, through small, intentional sacrifices, now, day after day after day, slowly but surely, becomes wise. Now, here's the problem. The problem is, as you start this plan, you're going to start seeing results. You're going to start looking at your bank account. It's going to start going up. You're going to be like, oh, man, my savings is growing. It's growing. Maybe you're investing it and you're getting interest off of it because the Bible talks about, you know, investing is a good thing. It's not a bad thing as long as you're not trying to do it quickly. Take your time. Go slow. And you're going you're to see results and it's going to be good. Or maybe you're here today and you're already seeing results. Your, your bank account is growing and growing and growing and you have a savings. Here's the problem, though. Most of the time, and for many of us, when this starts to happen, when we start to see that we are making progress and we are saving and saving and chipping away and we are hitting our goals all of a sudden, money begins to whisper things to us. And remember, money talks. And all of a sudden, when we start to become a little bit successful and start to make progress and get towards our goals, money says this, hoard me, hoard me. In fact, we see this in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 13, when Solomon, the richest guy who has ever lived, he says this, he spends this whole chapter talking about some of the dangers of money and wealth. And he says this, there is another serious problem that I have seen under the sun. What's the problem? Hoarding riches harms the saver. And here's the paradox of the Bible. You are commanded to be wise and save. But at the same time, hoarding harms your soul. What do I mean by that? 
Let me, let me give you an example from Luke chapter 12. We told this story last week when Jesus tells this parable about this guy who has all these fields that keep producing and producing and he's getting everything and he's getting more and more and he says this to himself. I know what I'll do. I've got so much. My account is so big. I know what I'm gonna do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. This guy says, basically, you know what? I keep getting more and more. I keep accumulating. I'm getting all these savings. I don't know what to do with it. So I'm just going to build another barn that's bigger and then build another barn that's bigger. He has no intention to do anything with his money except hoard it and keep it. And what I love about this story is this guy is only talking to himself. He never once asked Jesus or God what he should be doing with his barns. Instead, he just says, I'm going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I want more and more and more. And money basically says this, hoard me, accumulate me. Why? Because money tells us your worth, your value is defined by the size of your barns. The number on your account is where you find significance and worth and security. But Jesus, on the other hand, says this in Luke chapter 12. He says, beware, guard against every kind of greed because life is not measured by what? In other words, Jesus says your net worth is not your self-worth. Your value is not your bottom line. Your number is not your identity. And this is the danger. Because when we cross this line, and this, this imaginary line that I can't tell you this is the line, but there's this, this biblical tension that we have to live in. When we cross this line from saving to hoarding, we begin to listen to money too much. Because money promises something when we hoard it. What does it say? It says, hoard me and I will give you security. In other words, your future is safe with me. Yeah, the market may dip, but I'm good. Money says I'm secure. Yeah, the the housing market may crumble. Yeah, I may lose my job. Yeah, this may happen, or this may happen, or this may happen, and another pandemic may come. All of these bad things could happen, but money says, don't you worry, don't you worry, because your barn is big enough. You've got enough of me that you will survive any storm. I give you security. You'll be fine. But God says, trust me. Money says, with me, your future is safe. God says, trust me, trust me. First Timothy chapter six, verse 17 and 19 says it this way. Those who are rich in this world, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to what? Trust in their what? Their money, which is so unreliable. For their trust should be where? Hmm. Who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future that they may experience. In other words, and this is key, I don't want you to miss this. There has to be a moment in our lives. We've saved for emergencies. We're saving for the future. What Jesus is teaching here 
is there has to be a moment in our lives where we say, this is enough. My barn's big enough. Why? Because hoarding it and holding it does nothing for the kingdom of God. He says, store it up so that you can use it to bless others because that's where you will experience true life. This is the tension. We're commanded to save, but not to hoard. It comes down to trust. We see this in Exodus when the Israelites are wandering through the desert and every single day manna rains down and they're told, don't collect more than what you need for the day. Why? Because God wants them to learn that their future is in his hands. Because this is the reality, the tension. On one hand, we believe that the Bible says it's wise to save for the future. And on the other, our days on this earth are numbered and this is not our home. We save for the now, but live for the eternity. And my fear is that many of us are saving as if now is all that matters. And so here's, I, I wish I could give you like an answer, like how much should I save? When does it become hoarding? Like what's the line? What's X? The Bible doesn't tell that, but it, it does, I'll say this. Maybe a way for you to reflect on that this week is to ask yourself this question. Is the way I save reflective of what I believe? Is the way I save reflective of what I believe? Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful for you, for your love and your goodness in our lives. God, we are thankful for all throughout scripture for people who are both wealthy and both poor, God, that you show us that our financial condition does not change our devotion and passion towards you, that you use people from every socioeconomic stratus to change the world now. God, I pray that we would be a church that doesn't just hoard, but a church that saves wisely and responsibly and then uses the rest to change the world, to be people who bless others, who feed homeless, provide for orphans, and teach the Bible in other countries. God, I pray that would be us. This morning as we continue praying, maybe you're here today, and kind of the, the thing I want you to hear is that everything in life comes down to the question, do you trust God? Maybe you're here today and you would say, Adam, I don't. I've been living my life, doing my own thing, kind of going my own way. And I just, I'm not sure about this whole God thing. I don't know. And I just want to tell you that's okay. But here's what I know. I, I wouldn't feel right not saying it. That God is so good and so trustworthy that 2,000 years ago, he sent his son into this earth to die for you so that you, by trusting in him, can live an abundant, spiritually rich life full of goodness, not for yourself, but also for others. He wants to change you and save you for today and all of eternity. And if that's you this morning, if you want to kind of believe and put your trust in Jesus for the very first time, regardless of what campus you are at, with everyone's eyes closed and heads bowed, would you just slip up your hand today? 
you raised your hand, would you pray with me? Father, I am a sinner. I need your love. Jesus, come into my life. Make me new. Be my king and my Lord. Today I repent and I trust in you. Amen.